Genesis 37. Hear God's word to you this morning. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood up upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he set him off, sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the, these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when J Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. 
So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Mm-mm-mm. Now, every week when I prepare for worship, when it's my turn, um, I always search for a slide to put behind me here, as you see here. This nice, really cool-looking slide. I always look for a nice, kind of neat-looking slide, so that'll be behind me when I preach. And this time, I couldn't help myself. As I was looking, searching for a slide, I kept seeing all the different titles that different pastors were giving to their sermon on this chapter in Genesis. And, and I have to mention some of them to you because I got a kick out of some of them. Um, so uh, here's what some of them said. Strength through unfairness. That was one title. Another one. Joseph, a life of purpose and perspective. That's pretty nice. I'm sure Joseph felt that. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cute. Um, surviving tragedy. That was another one. Now, now the next ones, these really got fun. I'm, I had to mention them just for the heck of it. When dreams turn into nightmares. That's pretty clever, right? Next one was trust God with your dream. And I don't even think that was Joel Olstein, but still. <laughs> one of them was living the dream. Uh, yeah, it's not the kind of dream you want to live. Ask Joseph, right? And then last one, and, and this was by a, normally a pretty uh, conservative person. Joseph, God's superhero. Yeah. So I just thought it was interesting. And I didn't, like, skip the good ones, by the way. These are the good and the bad that I saw. So some of them, as I mentioned, are creative. Some of them are a clever play on words. Us pastors like to do that sometimes, us preachers. Some aren't too far off the mark. There's some truth in some of these titles. Others are way out there, as we just saw. But none of those titles actually hits the nail on the head when it comes to distilling the real reason that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. It isn't simply about learning to survive tragedy with grace and faith, although, let me say, you could learn that from this chapter and these chapters that are coming. Of course, that's there. I'm not saying it's totally illegitimate, but it's not, that's not the main point of it. It's definitely not about living the dream, okay? We know it's not about that. It's not about trusting God with your dreams, or it's, it's not about dreaming big dreams for God either. <laughs> this isn't something Joseph asked for. This is something that God gave him. 
So really, this is what's really cool as I really meditated on it and thought about it, and I kind of parted ways with my uh, preaching mentor on this one. But it's really not about J Joseph at all, is it? Per se. Look, at me, look with me at verse 2. What does it say there when, when Moses starts this last section of Genesis? I gave it away earlier. This is the account of who? Jacob. And the NASB translates it this way. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. So what we're talking about is what? The covenantal head. That's who this is about. It's not about Joseph, God's superhero, but the account of Jacob's family. Because here's the point. Moses wants to point out that this next lengthy section of the book of Genesis is about what? Now, I know you're probably sick of hearing me say this, but I can't help it that that's what God repeats over and over again. It's about God keeping his covenantal promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That's what this is about. Very important for us to see that. Joseph happens to be the human instrument God chooses to use to carry out his gracious purposes for his people. But don't make any mistake about this. The real hero of Genesis 37 is God. It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. From beginning to end of this story. And I'm going to give you Joseph's own words to clench my argument here. It's in chapter 41, verse 16. This is, we're fast forwarding the story just for a little bit here. It's when Pharaoh calls for Joseph out of prison because he heard he interprets dreams. He brings Joseph into his presence and he says to him, interpret my dream for me. And I want to read to you jo Joseph's own response, 41, 16. This is what Joseph says. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. What is Joseph saying? Hey, man, it ain't me. It's God. You're looking in the wrong place. In one sense, the right place is I'm his servant. But in another place, you have to understand if you get the, the answer you're looking for, it's not from me. It's from the one true God. So I think we can give God the glory right here and right now this morning because what's impossible for man is possible with God. On his own, jo Joseph would have had to say, oh. Right, so this is what we're going to see this morning. We're gonna, so, you know, the, I, I already told you what it doesn't mean, what the main point isn't of Genesis 37. So now let me tell you what the main point is, and then the rest of the time we have together, I'm going to show you and prove to you that is the main point. And that's this. God's plan for his people can never be thwarted. Even, and even the rebellion carries forward his plan. <laughs> that second part was the part that was a little stinger in the tail, isn't it? You know, we all say, amen, God's plan can't be thwarted. Yeah, and even your sin he uses to carry it out. That's where it gets interesting. So let's take a look at the first, first thing I want to point out from it. I only point out three things, as is my normal custom, but because that's what I see in the text. The first one is God reveals his plan. That's the first thing we need to see. The story begins, we all just heard it, we just read it together. We just, it begins with Joseph, 
And Joseph, remember, is one of Rachel's two sons. And if you remember, Rachel was the one that Jacob really loved. That was the wife that he wanted from the get-go, the one that he fell in love with, the one that till the day she died, that was the love of his life, right? And we know she died giving birth to Reuben. And so he's still a little boy at this point. That's why Joseph's the favorite son. And he's only 17 years old at this point. Which is interesting, um, just on a side note, that from 17 to 30, this young man was basically in prison. Or a servant. This chosen one. A lot of suffering. Those are the years, right? Those are the years most of us aren't married. We don't have kids. We have a lot of freedom. We could, do, you know, we go to college. We do all these wonderful things. Joseph, these prime years of his life were years of suffering. Just want to point that out. But we're told that he's tending the flocks, and I never saw this before, with the sons of Bilhah and Zippah. And that's the maidservants, if you remember. That's, Jacob had the two wives, and they had two maidservants. And then Jacob had sons uh, with the maidservants. You remember that? Those are the ones that, that Jacob said, Joseph, you go hang with them. Who knows if there was the jealousy factor, and there are other reasons why he said, no, I want you to spend time with these four in particular. But Joseph came back. Remember, we just read it. He came back with a bad report. Whoops. So he came back, and it looks like when we first read the text, he's a rat. Oh, you don't know what a rat is? A stool pigeon. You with me? All right, one more, because I still see some kind of glazing. He's a tattletale. He's telling on his brothers. So when you first read that, you think, hmm, interesting. But we're going to see something about that later that kind of uh, changes this a little bit for us. But the text does tell us, notice it points it out on a number of occasions, that Jacob loved him more than the other sons. And to make matters worse, here's the, here's the, the thing that's crazy. He didn't hide it. Like, at least if you have a favorite, you know, among your kids, you kind of try to hide it or, or fake like you're trying to hide it. But what does Jacob do? He gets him the nicest, really ornamented. We don't know what the Hebrew word really means, some many colors, highly ornamented. The point is, it was a royal robe. It was a beautiful robe, so beautiful, everybody knew he gives it to the favorite. So here we have a visible reminder constantly. Here's the kid is wearing this beautiful robe that none of the other sons have. So they were royal duds. So let's just say strike one for a reason for hating them, for the robe, which is mentioned a number of times in this text, by the way. But in baseball, we have another, we're going to use the baseball analogy, there's strike two. It says his, bro his brothers hated him because they knew that he loved, Jacob loved him more. In other words, he was daddy's pet. And it's interesting that Moses wants to point something out here, a detail that I think is important. They hated him so much, they couldn't even bring themselves to say one kind word to him. Now look, you've got to hate somebody a real lot to not even be, have the decency to say one nice thing to him. That's hatred. That's pure, fire-burning hatred. So that's strike two. And what I want you to see is they had no love for their brother Joseph even before he told them the dreams. 
Like I have pastor friends who always say, oh, he was such a spoiled brat. No wonder why they hated him. He told them his... Look, he didn't tell them the dreams yet. And what does the text say? They hated him. So like, why not tell the dreams, right, at this point? So I look at it. So Joseph had a dream. He tells it to his brothers. And then we see in the text, they hated him all the more, as if they needed more ammo. And, and I love it. Look at verses 6. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers were indignant, to say the least. They were like, seriously? You think you're going to rule? Look, look, you think you're going to rule over us? You ain't the boss of me. That's their attitude. Who made you boss? Who do you think you are, you little punk? And unfortunately, it tells us in the text they hated him all the more. Now, in American baseball, you get three strikes. So I must say that third one wasn't a strike. It was a foul ball because it's kind of like a strike because he had one more strike. And the last strike is he had another dream. And this time he includes his dad in on it like, oh, dad, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. And then, of course, it's the sun, the moon, 11 stars were bowing down to him. And it's interesting Jacob, and I wonder if it was in order to assuage his other son's anger, rebukes J uh, Joseph. Did you notice that? He says, come on, son. Are you saying that your mother and I and your brothers are going to bow down to you? But look at verse 11. This is a telling verse. His brothers were jealous of him. And by the way, we see why jealousy is so um, heinous. Because it leads to what? Murder. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. In other words, Jacob had lived long enough, had had enough experience with the Lord Yahweh, that when he heard the dreams, he was like, God's up to something. He had an open mind to, ah, there must be something to this. Remember, in his whole life, he had uh, the older will serve the younger revelations, right? He had all, so he knew as much as it bothered him, humanly speaking, there's a part of him that kind of said, I'm going to take this to heart. God might be telling us something. Now, there was a time, I, I can't avoid giving you this cross-reference in the New Testament where there was a similar thing that happened. You remember when the only story we have in the New Testament of Jesus as a young boy? You know that? We go from him being two, and then we have one incident, I think it was about 12, and then we have he's grown up. Well, when he was 12, they were together with their whole extended family, and they're, they're at the temple for a feast, I believe, a festival. And if you remember, they all start heading back with the clan, and where's Jesus, the young boy? He's at the temple. And he was amazing, the scribes, with his questions and with his answers. And if you remember, they, they get home, and they're like, where's Jesus? You know, some of us remember, I remember Mary and I would be home, we're like, where's Colin? We left him at church. I can't, we'd have to go back and pick him. So that, these things actually happen. So they get back and they're like, did you have, I don't have Jesus. You have Jesus. Where did he go? So they go back. They're looking for Jesus. They find him at the temple. And this is what, this is what happens. Mary said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? There's the rebuke. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus' answer. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? <laughs> Psst. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them 
and was obedient to them. Now listen, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. In other words, she was like, hmm, something's going on here. This is not normal. And that's what's going on with Jacob. Jacob's like, I know that there's something here more than meets the eye. This isn't a normal dream. I think God is breaking through here. So he didn't know exactly what that would mean, but he knew it meant something. Now, verses 1 to 11 have been a field day for people, commentators, preachers, making moral judgments about whether it's Joseph being spoiled or naive or whether it's Jacob, uh, you know, uh, Jacob's favoritism. But did you notice something in the text? Moses never comments on any of that. Do you see that there? He does, the, the text doesn't go on and on to rip apart either of those two. It just tells us the facts. You see that. And I think we have to be careful before we start pontificating. Because what's really interesting is, is that the, the real point of this is that God is revealing his plan to his people in bud form through these dreams. That's the point. And notice what his brothers assume when they ask this. They say to Joseph, do you intend to reign over us? See that in verse 8? Did Joseph say anything about intending to rule over them? No. What did Joseph do? He just told them the raw dream. Which, excuse me one second, but I've got to get this because it's very interesting. I want to say this because I never saw this before ever. Did you notice when he tells the dreams, they all know what they mean already? They know the interpretation. So right away, he's only talking about, what's he talking about? He's talking about sheaves, right? And what do the brothers say? Hey, that's us bowing down to you. They got it, didn't they? And then the second dream, what, is, what does Jacob say? Hey, well, your mother and I and your brothers bow down to you. This is why, this is the point I want to make. I believe in, God, in God's covenant people, he gave them the understanding of the dream. Whereas when he goes to the pagan land, Pharaoh doesn't know what to do with those dreams. So I don't think Joseph was this special person in that sense. I think it was part of the covenant community. It's kind of like, you know, what does it talk about in the New Testament for believers? We have the spirit of Christ. So we understand the word of Christ. When we speak to non-believers, what? They're clueless. They don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the revelation. And I think that's, it, that's just an interesting side point I wanted to make real quick. But I think it was a, a very interesting point. So notice here, though, so we got the message. It's coming through the dream. And I think this is a, was a big takeaway for me, too. The problem with the brothers, listen, this is important. The problem with the brothers is they couldn't separate the message from the messenger. Now, do you ever have some self-righteous prig come up to you and maybe rebuke you or tell you something, but you know it was true? Yeah, I know. And I don't like it because I don't like the person who told me. Now, you know, I was like, man, I wish it was somebody that I love that I could respect. You know, like, like my buddy Randy coming up to me and say, Sam, you know, this is something, you know, all right. Here. But when it's somebody who's been like, you know, kind of like self-righteous prig. So the problem with us, brothers and sisters, is Sometimes we need to accept the message no matter who brings it. Can I get an amen? 
and let God deal with that self-righteous prig if they are self-righteous. Don't worry, they'll get theirs, so to speak. But we got to take the message of God no matter what the messenger <coughs> looks like. If it's a true message, as in this case, it was a true message. There's no doubt about it. So their, their hatred, their jealousy blinded them to what God was going to do. Dick Lucas puts it this way. God announces at the beginning of the story how the story is going to end. Isn't that cool? The brothers scoff, but Israel keeps it in mind. The essence of Christian preaching is that we are telling people how the story is going to end. Isn't that true? I mean, that's, the gospel's all about revelation. Jesus wins. So get right with God because that's how it's going to end. There's no question on how it's going to end. That is how it's going to end. King Jesus will be victorious. And every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The only question is, are you going to do it willingly? I'm ahead of myself. So we go to the second point. Second thing we see, we see God reveals his plan through the dreams. Now we're going to see God's people reject God's plan. That's what we're going to see. And that, that's that. Uh, we won't go into as much detail as I could get into. Um, but we're going to take a quick look at it. Verses 14 to 36 give us the blow-by-blow blow details of how Joseph's brothers plot to get rid of their brother with murderous intent. Now, they start with Jacob sending Joseph to go check on his brothers and bring word back to him. So, remember I told you later we're going to get a little more information about him being a snitch? Who made him a snitch? It looks like Jacob would send him out to go on these information gathering trips. Because we have it right here where he goes, go see your brothers and bring word back to me about what's going on. So in many ways, Joseph was just doing what his dad told him to do. You know, his dad kind of put him in that awkward situation to be a rat. Just want to point that out. But when Joseph's brothers see him coming from a distance, that's how much they hate his guts. Notice what they do. They plot to kill him. Look at verse 19. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come, on, come now, let's kill him. And throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now notice... Did they want to kill just Joseph? Notice what they really want to kill. The dreams. You get that? They are rejecting the word of the Lord. Because they don't like where they think it's going. Because they're not the ones in charge. They're not getting bowed down to. They're the ones bowing. And they don't like being in the subservient position. Isn't that interesting? Because that, that, that line to me was chilling when I read it. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now we know how the story ends, so we want to shout out, you dopes! You, would, you wouldn't just be killing his dreams, you would be killing your only hope of salvation, you dopes. You would be removing your deliverance. Because we know what happens in the end. Joseph is the deliverer and saves them. And that's what the rest 
of chapter 37 outlines for us is that how God works all things out so that instead of them killing Joseph, they sell him to the Ishmaelites who then sell him to Potiphar, an Egyptian official. So this is what we see when you really see the crux of this whole thing. There's no one, no power on earth, no power in hell below that could, can prevent the divine dreams from coming true. And here's the interesting thing. The brothers' evil actions will only add to their need for deliverance and mercy. Isn't that interesting? But they won't stop the plan of God. As a matter of fact, now here's where it gets really incredible. In God's mysterious, wondrous way, even their sin and their rebellion will be used to fulfill the dream that God gave Joseph. So they thought they were going to be killing the dream and they were making it come true by throwing them in that cistern and selling them to Egypt because the whole point is God wanted to get them to Egypt. You see that? Of course, you have two of the brothers, which is very interesting here. We don't have time to get deep into it. But we have two of the brothers who try to mitigate the plan. Right? Reuben's like, let's not kill him. Because his idea was he'd go back later, get him out of the cistern, and bring him back to Jacob to be the hero, which is kind of winning browning points from, from, from dad because what? He slept with one of dad's wives. So he would have got back on dad's good list. You know, I, I won't speak of who's, who says this, but there's somebody in my life that they talk about the good list, and excuse me, but the crap list. So he would get off the crap list by doing this. But if, then Judah... He's the one that says, look, what, what's the point of killing the boy? There's nothing in it for us. There's no money in it. When we, why don't we just sell him? You know, and then you know, that way we don't kill him. Everything's good. And, of course, that's what happens. The Ishmaelites, Midianites, they come. They're on their way to Egypt. They have these gifts to bring to Egypt. And they sell their brother for 20 shekels of silver. That's the price of a slave, by the way. That's what they sold their brother for. Down the river. And you know what's interesting here? There's a little detail that isn't given until chapter 42 when the brothers are talking to, amongst themselves when they get back to Egypt. But we find out something that's very heart-wrenching here. When they intended on killing him and when they threw him into the cistern, we find this out in chapter 42, verse 21. This is what the brothers say about the incident. They saw how distressed their brother was when he pleaded with them for his life. In other words, we didn't see it in chapter 37 because it wasn't there. The brothers add it later. Joseph was begging them not to do it. Imagine the pitiful scene. Brothers, please don't do this. Have mercy, brothers. Have mercy. But no answer came. And you know, this text is brutally honest. Their brother is languishing in an empty cistern, in tears and in misery. And you know what they do? They break out their sandwiches. Did you notice that? They sat down to have lunch. Can you be any more cold-hearted than that? You're hearing your brother, ah, and you're sitting there munching on sandwiches. As if it was just another day on the job. 
It's while they're munching away that the Ishmaelites come and they sell them. And then, of course, they got to go back to their brother now. And Reuben's really upset because he doesn't even know what's going on because he was away when this happened. He was watching the flocks. And they bring up, they, they say, hey, let's take the robe. This robe comes back into it. Let's dip it in uh, goat's blood. Let's go and tell dad that wild animals devoured him. And, of course, Jacob sees it and he is beside himself. And he is inconsolable. The whole family, the daughter-in-laws, the sons, everybody tries to console him. And Jacob says, there's no way. I will go down to the grave in mourning for my son. And can you imagine how long Jacob would have to be dreaming and sleep at night and thinking about the way that his son met his grisly death? Think about that. He didn't know that he was still alive. Think about you who have children. It would be to think that one of my sons died that way. It would haunt me, to say the least. Now, Dick Lucas puts it this way. The chosen deliverer of God's people is rejected from the very beginning. By his own kith and kin, the very people he came to deliver. Isn't that striking? And that pattern goes right through the Bible, as everybody knows. God raises up Joseph, and what do they do to him? They sell him into slavery. They reject him. Remember what I said earlier about Joseph not being the hero of the story? Well, technically, I still, st I still stand on that. But there is a sense in which Joseph is the hero of the story. And he's only the hero of the story as he is a type of Christ. As he is the sh a shadow of the Christ who would come. Because listen, remember he cried and he screamed out and he pled for mercy. And there were no angels. And there were no rescuers. Who does that sound like? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No one came and rescued Jesus from the cross. Remember Joseph was stripped of his robe? Well, you remember Jesus was stripped of his robes, wasn't he? And hung naked on the cross. And this is what, I, what we need to see. This is where the payoff. So hang with me. The last couple minutes, it's the most important in many ways. So often people will say, you know, God went to Israel. That was plan A. And then when they rejected him, he went to the Gentiles. That's plan B. We see way back here in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, it was always God's plan A. He never had a plan B. Part of his plan includes his people rejecting their deliverer. You think that took God by surprise? You think God had a plan A and went, oops, ooh, didn't see that coming. If you believe that, then you got the wrong God. No, God actually, in his mysterious, marvelous way, in his infinite wisdom, he planned this whole thing that the Redeemer, the Deliverer, would be rejected by his people as a part of, of his plan. I want to skip ahead to the end just for a second here. You remember when the brothers finally approached uh, Joseph in Egypt. Joseph had been raised up to be second only to Pharaoh. And you remember what Joseph says to them. You meant it for evil. 
but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. Acts 22, verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, meaning Jesus. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It is all part of God's plan. Acts 4, when the early church is praying. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had, desi had de decided beforehand should happen. How do you like that? That's the Santo version. How do you like that, I would say? S.G. DeGraff, DeGraff says this, S.G. DeGraff. They could not possibly have known that Joseph's banishment from their midst was God's doing and would one day serve to preserve their community, not just by keeping their family from starvation, but also by turning them again to the word of the Lord and to each other. In the same way, Christ was sold and banished from the community of his people in order to save his people. And so Jesus could say on the cross, Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So this is my closing application I want to share is this. Sometimes as believers, we do face unjust suffering. Can I get an amen? Amen. There are times that we, we have to feel like, Lord, I'm striving to do what you say you do, but the more I actually am able to do what you do, the more it seems like I go backwards in my life. And things don't pan out. Like Joseph, you go out of the frying pan, the cistern, into the fryer, sold into slavery. Listen, do you think, when Joseph first heard those dreams, do you think he envisioned being at the bottom of a broke, an empty well as part of that dream? Do you think going to a land where he didn't speak the language, where he had to be a servant, where because he does the right thing he gets thrown in prison, you think that was part of his dream? I think sometimes we hear the end, Jesus wins, and we struggle with the details of how God gets us there. Can I get another amen? amen. And I think this is the big takeaway for me on that one is that I don't have to live my life according to what the circumstances are today. I can trust the word of the Lord that what we saw earlier, that's why I quoted Romans 8, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to, the to his purpose. Now, we need to remember that when we're at the bottom of the well. We need to remember that when we're serving in a prison cell. And the second and last application, and I think this is for more of us, most of us here. What about when we're dealing with just suffering? What about when we're the brothers? <laughs> Not Joseph, because we all want to be Joseph. But remember, there was only one Joseph. <laughs> so most of God's people were all kinds of messed up, because that's who the brothers were at that time. They were God's people. Such is the marvelous mercy and grace of God that he will use even your sins, even your mistakes, even your rebellion someday for your good if you love him 
and are called according to your purposes. How many of us can look back at where we're ashamed of certain things to see that how God, despite ourselves, used it to further his will in our lives? And as I've, we've seen throughout Genesis, if your takeaway is, oh, good, then I can live any way I want, well, then you've got to question whether you love God and you're called according to his purpose. Can I get an amen there? Such is the marvelous, awesome grace and mercy and plan of God that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we can't thank you enough that when we see wayward children, when we don't know how bills are going to get paid, when we preach the gospel and it seems no one gets saved, that you are still on the throne and you are still working every single thing, good, bad, and indifferent, for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So we can trust you when we don't see that hand working because we trust your heart and your will in Christ Jesus for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. And as we receive